0: section eight of the most extraordinary trial of william palmer by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Lynn thompson fourth day may the seventeenth part two dr daniel examined by the attorney-general i was for many years surgeon to the bristol hospital but have been out of practice for some time In the course of a long practice, I should think that I have seen at least 30 cases of tetanus. Two of those were certainly cases of idiopathic tetanus. One of them terminated fatally, the other did not. I quite agree with the other medical witnesses that idiopathic tetanus is a very rare occurrence in this country. The only difference in the symptoms between idiopathic and traumatic tetanus that I perceived was that the former were more modified, not so severe, in their character. I was not able to trace these two cases of idiopathic tetanus to any particular cause. I have heard the description given of the symptoms which accompanied the attack upon Mr. Cook before his death, and it appears to me that the circumstances of that attack are assuredly distinguishable from those which came under my experience in dealing with cases of tetanus. The evidence of Sir B. Brodie quite expresses my opinion with respect to the difference of the symptoms between ordinary tetanus and tetanic convulsions produced by strychnine tetanus begins with uneasiness in the lower jaw followed by spasms of the muscles of the trunk and most frequently extending to the muscles of the limbs lock jaw is almost invariably a symptom of those cases of tetanus of traumatic tetanus especially I do not recollect that clinching of the hands is a usual symptom of ordinary tetanus, nor do I remember any twisting of the foot. I do not believe that any of the cases which came under my experience endured for a shorter time than from 30 to 40 hours. I never knew a case of syphilitic sore producing tetanus. The symptoms, as they have been described, certainly cannot be referable to apoplexy or epilepsy. I never heard of such a thing. In all the cases of tetanus which came under my observation, consciousness has been retained to the last throughout the whole disease. The symptoms have never set in in their full power from the commencement, but have invariably commenced in a milder form, and have then gone on increasing, being continuous in their character and without intermission. In my judgment, the symptoms of the case of Mr. Cook could not be referred either to idiopathic or traumatic tetanus. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove, QC I have not read Dr. Curling's or Dr. Copeland's books on the subject of tetanus, nor have I of late studied much the reported cases. I am not aware that excitement or irritation from vomiting has ever been given as the cause of tetanus. The main symptoms of tetanus are, in my opinion, always very similar although the inferior symptoms may vary simply. I cannot undertake to say that the convulsions of tetanus arise from the spine. I do not like the term asphyxia, but I think that death from tetanic convulsions may probably arise from suffocation. It is many years since I saw a post-mortem upon a case of tetanus. I cannot say whether, in the case of death from suffocation, the heart would be full of blood, or the reverse. An examination of the spinal cord or marrow never so far as I know afforded evidence of the cause to which the tetanus was to be attributed. Mr. Samuel Solly, surgeon of St. Thomas's Hospital, examined by Mr. Wellsby. I have been connected with St. Thomas's Hospital as lecturer and surgeon for twenty-eight years, and during that time I have seen many cases of tetanus. I have had six or seven under my own care and I may have seen ten or fifteen more. Of those cases, it was doubtful in one whether the disease was idiopathic or traumatic. The wound was so slight and the symptoms so obscure that it was difficult to decide which it was. The others were all decidedly traumatic cases. The shortest period that I recollect during which the disease lasted before it terminated in death was thirty hours. The disease was always progressive in its character. I have heard the description given by the witnesses of Mr. Cook's attacks, and they differ essentially from those cases which I have seen. In my experience of tetanus, there has always been a marked expression of the countenance as the first symptom. It is a sort of grin, and so peculiar that having once seen it, you can never mistake it. In the symptom that I heard detailed with regard to Mr. Cook, There were violent convulsions on Monday night, and on Tuesday the individual was entirely free from any discomfort about the face or jaw, whereas in the cases under my notice the disease was always continuous, and the fixedness of the jaw was the last symptom to disappear. In my judgment, the symptoms detailed in Mr. Cook's case are referable neither to apoplexy, epilepsy, nor to any disease that I have ever witnessed cross examined by mr sergeant shee the sort of grin which i have described is known as risus sardonicus it is not common to all convulsions epilepsy is a disease of a convulsive character i heard the account given by mr jones of the last few minutes of mr cook's death that he uttered a piercing shriek and died after five or six minutes quietly that last shriek and the paroxysm which accompanied it bear in some respects the resemblance to epilepsy all convulsions which may be designated as of an epileptic character are not attended with an utter want of consciousness death from tetanus accompanied with convulsions seldom leaves any trace behind it but death from convulsions arising from epilepsy does leave its trace in the shape of a slight effusion of blood on the brain and a congestion of the vessels re-examined by the attorney general the convulsions of epilepsy are accompanied by a variety of symptoms when a patient dies of epilepsy he dies perfectly unconscious and comatose i never saw any case of convulsive disease at all like this there are cases of convulsive disease which are similar to tetanus in their onset but not in their progress for example laceration of the brain a sudden injury to the spinal cord and the irritation from teething in infants will produce convulsions resulting in death but there would be wanting the marked expression of the face which i have described which i have never missed in cases of tetanus mr henry lee surgeon to king's college and to the lock hospital examined by mr bodkin the lock hospital is exclusively devoted to cases of a syphilitic character, and at present I see probably as many as 3,000 of those cases in the course of a year, I have never known an instant of that disease terminating in tetanus. By the court, I have never seen or read of a case either of primary or secondary symptoms resulting in tetanus. This witness was not cross-examined. Dr. Henry Corbett, physician of Glasgow, Examined by Mr. James QC In September 1845, I was medical clerk at the Glasgow Infirmary, and I remember a patient named Agnes Sennett, alias Agnes French, who died there on the 27th of September 1845. It was stated that she had taken strychnine pills, which had been prepared for another patient in the ward, and the symptoms which accompanied her death were those of strychnine. The pills were for a paralytic patient. I saw her when she was under the influence of the poison, and I had seen her the day before that perfectly well. She had been admitted for a skin disease of the head. When I saw her after she had taken the poison, she was in bed. The symptoms were these. There was a strong reaction of the mouth. The face was much suffused and red. The pupils of the eye were dilated. The head was bent back. The spine was curved, and the muscles were rigid and hard like a board. The arms were stretched out, the hands were clinched, and there were severe paroxysms recurring every few seconds. She died in about an hour and a quarter after taking the pills. When I was first called, the paroxysms did not last so long, but they increased in severity. According to the prescription, there should have been a quarter of a grain of strychnine in each pill and this woman had taken three. The paralytic patient was to have taken a pill each night, or one each night and morning, I forget which. Cross-Examined by Mr. Sergeant, Shee The retraction of the mouth was continuous, but it was worse at times. I do not think that I observed it after death. The hands were not clinched after death. They were semi-bent. She died an hour and a quarter after taking the medicine. The symptoms appeared about twenty minutes after. I tried to make her vomit with a feather, but failed. She only vomited partially after I had given her an emetic. Re-examined by the Attorney-General. There was a spasmodic action and grinding of the teeth. She could open her mouth and swallow. There was no lockjaw or ordinary tetanus. By Mr. Sergeant Shee. I do not recollect that touching her sent her into paroxysms dr watson examined by the attorney general i am a surgeon at the glasgow infirmary i remember the case of agnes sennett i was called in about a quarter of an hour after she was taken ill she was in violent convulsions and her arms were stretched out and rigid the muscles of the body were also rigid and were kept quiet by rigidity she did not breathe the muscles being kept still by titanic rigidity That paroxysm subsided, and fresh paroxysms came on after a short interval. She died in about half an hour. She seemed perfectly conscious. I don't recollect the state of her hands. Her body was opened. The heart was found distended and stiff. The cavities of the heart were empty. My father published an account of the case. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove. The spinal cord was quite healthy. Dr. J Patterson examined by Mr Wellesby In eighteen forty five I was engaged in the laboratory of the infirmary at Glasgow. I dispensed the prescriptions. I made up a prescription for a paralytic patient named McIntyre. It consisted of pills which contained strychnine. There were four pills, and one grain of strychnine in the four. Baron Alderson Was there any noise made about their being taken by the wrong person? Yes. Mary Kelly, examined by Mr. Bodkin. In September 1845, I was a patient in the Glasgow infirmary. A paralytic patient was in the same ward, and I attended to her. There was also a patient named French, or Sennett, who was suffering from a sore head. She died. I was turning a wheel near the paralytic patient on the afternoon of the day Senate died, for the purpose of applying something to her skin. There were some pills which she was to take near her. The paralytic woman took one and swallowed it according to the orders that had been given, and then handed the box to the girl with the sore head. The girl swallowed two of the pills, and then went and sat by the ward fire. She was taken ill in about three quarters of an hour, and fell back on the floor, and I went for nurse. We took her to bed, and sent for the doctor. We were obliged to cut her clothes off because she never moved. She was like a poker. I was by her side when she died. She never spoke after she fell down. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant She. It was three-quarters of an hour from the time she took the pills till she was taken to the bed. Caroline Hickson, examined by Mr. James in october eighteen forty eight i was nurse and ladies' maid to the family of mr Sargentston smith the family were then residing about two miles from romsey on the thirtieth of october mrs smith was unwell we dealt with mr jones a druggist in romsey a prescription had been sent to him to be made up for mrs smith the medicine was brought back about six o'clock in the afternoon it was a mixture in a bottle My mistress took about half a wine-glass of it the following morning, at five or ten minutes past seven o'clock. I left the room when I had given it her. Five or ten minutes afterwards I was alarmed by the ringing of her bell. I went into her room and found her out of bed, leaning upon a chair, in her night-dress. I thought she had fainted. She appeared to suffer from what I thought were spasms. I ran and sent the coachman for Mr. Taylor, the surgeon, and returned to her. Some of the other servants were there assisting her. She was lying on the floor. She screamed loudly, and her teeth were clinched. She asked to have her arms and legs held straight. I took hold of her arms and legs, which were very much drawn up. She still screamed, and was in great agony. She requested that water should be thrown over her, and I threw some her feet were turned inwards i put a bottle of hot water to her feet but that did not relax them shortly before she died she said she felt easier the last words she uttered were turn me over we did turn her over on the floor she died a few minutes after she had spoken those words she died very quietly she was quite conscious and knew me during the whole time About an hour and a quarter elapsed from the time I had given her the medicine till she died. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove. She could not sit up from the time I went up to her till she died. It was when she was in a paroxysm that I endeavoured to straighten her limbs. The effect of cold water was to throw her into a paroxysm. It was a continually recurring attack, lasting about an hour or an hour and a quarter. Her teeth were clinched during the whole time. Re-examined by the Attorney-General, the fit came on five or ten minutes after I gave her the medicine. She was stiff all the time till within a few minutes after death. She was conscious all the while. Mr. Francis Taylor examined by Mr. wellsby I am a surgeon and apothecary at Romsey. I attended Mrs. Sargentson Smith in eighteen forty eight I was summoned to her house one morning soon after eight, and when I arrived, I found her dead. The body was on the floor near the bed. The hands were very much bent. The feet were contracted and turned inwards. The soles of the feet were hollowed up, and the toes contracted, apparently from recent spasmodic action. The inner edge of each foot was turned up. There was a remarkable rigidity about the limbs. By Lord Campbell The body was warm. Examination continued. The eyelids were almost adherent to the eyeballs. The druggist who made up the prescription was named Jones. I made a post-mortem examination three days after the death. The contraction of the feet continued, but it had gone off somewhat from the rest of the body. I found no trace of disease in the body. The heart was contracted and perfectly empty, as were all the large arteries leading from it. I analysed the medicine she had taken with another medical man. It contained a large quantity of strychnine. It originally contained nine grains, and she had taken one-third, three grains. I made a very casual examination of the stomach and bowels, as we had plenty of proof that poison had been taken without making use of tests. Cross-Examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee in cases of death from ordinary causes the body is much distorted it does not generally i should think remain in the same position after death if the body is not laid out immediately is it not stiffened by the rigor mortis probably it is the ankles were tied by a bandage to keep them together i commenced to open the body at the thorax and abdomen the head was also opened charles bloxham examined by mr huddleston i was apprenticed to mr jones the chemist at romsey in eighteen forty eight my master made a mistake in preparing a prescription for mrs smith the mistake was the substitution of strychnine for salachite bark of willow he destroyed himself afterwards jane witham examined by mr e james in march last i was in attendance upon a lady who died the learned counsel told the witness she had better not mention the lady's name she took some medicine after she took it she became ill she complained first of her back her head was thrown back her body stretched out and i observed twitchings her eyes were drawn aside and staring i put my hand upon her limbs which did not at all relax She first complained of being ill in that way on Monday, the 25th of February, and died on Saturday, the 1st of March. She had attacks on the Monday, on the Wednesday, on the Thursday, on the Friday, a very slight one, and at a quarter past eight o'clock on the Saturday morning. She died about 20 minutes to 11 that night. Between the attacks she was composed. She principally complained of prickings in the legs and twitchings in the muscles and in her hands, which she said she could compare to nothing else than a galvanic shock. She wished her husband to rub her legs and arms. She was dead when Dr. Morley came. Cross-Examined by Mr. Sergeant, she, On the Saturday night she could not bear to have her legs touched when the spasms were strong upon her. Her limbs were rigidly extended when she asked to be rubbed. That was in the interval between the spasms touching her then brought on the spasms her body was stiff immediately after death but i did not stay long in the house on the saturday she was sensible from half an hour to an hour from a quarter past eight till after nine i suppose she was insensible the remainder of the time she did not speak re-examined by mr e james on the saturday before she died the symptoms were the same as on the other days not more violent Mr. Morley, examined by Mr. Wellesby. I am a surgeon. I attended on the lady to whom the last witness has alluded for about two months before her death. On the Monday before she died, she was in bed apparently comfortable when I observed, as I stood by her side, several slight convulsive twitchings of her arms. I suppose they arose from hysteria and ordered medicine in consequence. The same symptoms were repeated on the following Wednesday or Thursday i saw her on saturday the day she died she was apparently better and quite composed in the middle of the day she complained of an attack she had had in the night she spoke of pain and spasms in the back and neck and of shocks i and another medical man were sent for hastily on the saturday night we were met by the announcement that the lady was dead on the monday i accompanied another medical gentleman to the post-mortem examination we found no disease in any part of the body which would account for death there was no emaciation wound or sore there was a peculiar expression of anxiety about the countenance the hands were bent and the fingers curved the feet were strongly arched we carefully examined the stomach and its contents to see if we could find poison we applied several tests nitric acid chloride of sulphuric acid bichloride of potash in a liquid state and also in a solid state they are the best tests to detect the presence of strychnine in each case we found appearances characteristic of strychnine we administered the strychnine taken from the stomach to animals by inoculation we gave it to a few mice a few rabbits and a guinea pig having first separated it by chemical analysis we observed in each of the animals more or less the effects produced by strychnine namely, general uneasiness, difficult breathing, convulsions of a tetanic kind, muscular rigidity, arching backwards of the head and neck, violent stretching out of the legs. These symptoms appeared in some of the animals in four or five minutes, in others in less than an hour. The guinea pig suffered but slightly at first, and was left, and found dead the next day. The symptoms were strongly marked in the rabbits. After death there was an interval of flaccidity, after which rigidity commenced, more than if it had been occasioned by the usual rigor mortis. I afterwards made numerous experiments on animals with exactly similar results, the poison being administered in a fluid form. Cross-examined by Mr. Grove I did not see the patient during the severe attack. I have observed in animals that spasms are brought on by touch. That is a very marked symptom. The spasm is like a galvanic shock. The patient was not at all insensible during the time I saw her, and she was able to swallow, but I did not see her during a severe attack. After death we found the lungs very much congested. There was a small quantity of blood serum in the pericardium. The muscles of the whole body were dark and soft. There was a decided quantity of effusion in the brain. There was also a quantity of serum tinged with blood in the membranes of the spinal cord. The membranes of the spinal marrow were congested to a considerable extent. We opened the head first, and there was a good deal of blood flowing out. Part of the blood may have flowed from the heart. That might partially empty the heart, and would make it uncertain whether the heart was full or empty at the time of death. I have often examined the hearts of animals poisoned by strychnine. The right side of the heart is generally full. In some cases I think that the symptoms did not appear for an hour after the administration of the poison. I have made the experiments in conjunction with Mr. Nunnerly. We have made experiments upon frogs, but they are different in many respects from warm-blooded animals. I have in almost all cases found the strychnine where it was known to have been administered. In one case it was doubtful. We were sure the strychnine had been administered in that case, but we doubted whether it had reached the stomach. There were appearances which might lead one to infer the presence of strychnine, but they were not satisfactory. I have detected strychnine in the stomach nearly two months after death, when decomposition has proceeded to a considerable extent. Re-examined by the Attorney General From half a grain to a grain has been administered to cats, rabbits, and dogs, from one to two grains is quite sufficient to kill a dog. How does the strychnine act? Is it taken up by the absorbance and carried into the system? I think it acts upon the nerves, but a part may be taken into the blood and act through the blood. We generally examined the stomach of the animals when the poison had been administered internally. Sometimes we examined the skin. The poison found in the stomach would be in excess of that absorbed into the system. "'Are you, then, of the opinion a portion of the poison being taken into the system "'and a portion being left in the stomach, "'the portion taken into the system would produce tetanic symptoms and death?' "'Mr. Sergeant she objected to a question which suggested a theory. "'The Attorney-General. "'What would be the operation of that portion of the poison which is taken into the system? "'It would destroy life.' "'Mr. Baron Alderson.' and yet leave an excess in the stomach? That is my opinion. The Attorney-General. Would the excess remaining in the stomach produce no effect? I am not sure that strychnine could lie in the stomach without acting prejudicially. Suppose that a minimum quantity is administered, which, being absorbed into the system, destroys life. Should you expect to find any in the stomach?' I should expect sometimes to fail in discovering it. If death resulted from a series of minimum doses spread over several days, would the appearance of the body be different from that of one whose death had been caused by one dose? I should connect the appearance of the body with the final struggle of the last day. Would you expect a different set of phenomena in cases where death had taken place after a brief struggle, and in cases where the struggle had been protracted? Certainly at the post-mortem examination of which i have spoken we found fluid blood in the veins mr sergeant she is it your theory that in the action of poisoning the poison becomes absorbed and ceases to exist as poison i have thought much upon that question and have not formed a decided opinion but i am inclined to think that it is so a part may be absorbed and a part remain in the stomach unchanged Mr. Sergeant Shee, what chemical reason can you give for your opinion that strychnine, after having effected the operation of poisoning, ceases to be strychnine in the blood? My opinion rests upon the general principle that, in acting upon living bodies, organic substances, such as food and medicine, are generally changed in their composition. Mr. Sergeant Shee, what are the component parts of strychnine? Mr. Baron Alderson, you will find that in any cyclopédia, Brother she. Mr. Sergeant she, have you any reason to believe that strychnine can be decomposed by any sort of putrefying or fermenting process? Witness, I doubt whether it can. Mr. Edward D. Moore, examined by Mr. Huddleston. About fifteen years ago I was in practice as a surgeon, and I attended with Dr. Chambers, a gentleman named Clutterbuck, who was suffering from paralysis. We had been giving him small doses of strychnine when he went to Brighton. On his return he told us that he had been taking larger doses of strychnine, and we, in consequence, gave him a stronger dose. I made up three draughts, confining a quarter of a grain each. He took one in my presence— I remained with him a little time, and left him, and he said he felt quite comfortable. About three-quarters of an hour afterwards I was summoned to him. I found him stiffened in every limb, and the head drawn back. He was desirous that we should move and turn him, and rub him. We tried to give him ammonia in a spoon, and he snapped at the spoon. He was suffering, I should say, more than three hours. Sedatives were given him. He survived the attack. He was conscious all the time. Cross-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee The spasms ceased in about three hours, but the rigidity of the muscles remained till the next day. His hands and feet were at first drawn back, and he was much easier when we clinched them forwards. His paralysis was better after the attack. Re-examined by the Attorney-General strychnine stimulates the nerves which act upon the voluntary muscles and therefore acts beneficially in cases of paralysis the attorney-general intimated that the next witness to be called was dr taylor and as it was quarter after five the trial was adjourned until monday at nine o'clock lord campbell before the jury left the box exhorted them not to form any opinion upon the case until they had heard both sides they should even abstain from conversing about it among themselves mr sergeant shee said that medical witnesses would be called for the defence his lordship also expressed a hope that if the jury were taken out upon the following day sunday they would not be allowed to go to any place of public resort and mentioned an instance in which a jury under similar circumstances had been conducted to epping forest the Court then rose, and the jury were conveyed to the London Coffee House. End of Section Eight.